Come to the Lord in prayer now. Our dear Heavenly Father, we just pray that you will speak now to us through your Spirit, so that we who are one body in Christ will uh, in this body love you and serve you to your honor and glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I was a young teenager in secondary school, uh, I went along to the Christian Teenage Fellowship in my local school. And I remember one meeting uh, in that teenage fellowship that I went to and everyone around me started to get quite emotional and uh, they started speaking and praying in a strange way that I didn't understand, that didn't make any sense to me. And then I found out later, they told me that this was um, speaking in tongues. And they told us that um, if you speak in tongues, it shows that you have the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, they explained to me, Christians who didn't speak in tongues were like, uh, electrical appliances they, that were plugged into the wall socket, but they didn't turn on the electricity. So they have no power. But if you turn on the electricity, then uh, the Holy Spirit will act powerfully in your life, and uh, you know this because you'll be able to speak in tongues. So every Christian should want the Spirit's power working in them and want to speak in tongues. That's what I was uh, taught. Now, is this true? Is this true that we don't, if we don't have the gift of tongues, then we're walking around uh, disconnected from our power source. You know, is it true that if we don't have tongues, we are not spirit-filled Christians? Well, the Corinthians had a very similar issue in their church too. You see, they, they had a very similar view to my friends in the teenage fellowship. They thought uh, that the Christians who had very spectacular gifts, like the ability to speak in tongues, which is speaking in uh, languages that you've not learned before, they were more spiritual people. And those people who had very impressive gifts like tongues, they looked down on those ordinary Christians out there who did not have those gifts. And they thought that those gifts, having those gifts showed that they had more of the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is what um, our passage today and for the next three weeks is going to be about. Paul writes three chapters, chapters 12 to 14, to tell the Corinthians to tell them what to think about spiritual gifts and to teach them how they ought to uh, exercise their spiritual gifts, especially gifts like tongues. So this is what we're going to be looking at from today for the next three weeks. And so let's start now by looking at chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And I'll read to you from verse 1. Now, about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other you were influenced and led astray to mute idols, Therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. So Paul says, I'm going to talk about spiritual gifts. And then he tells them how different they are now compared to what they were before. See, before they became Christians, they were pagans. They were led astray to idols. But now... They no longer worship idols. They worship the true and living God and they confess Christ as Lord. What happened to them? What caused this dramatic change, this big turnaround in their lives? Well, the answer is the Holy Spirit. See, it's only by the Holy Spirit that anyone can say Jesus is Lord. Now, of course, you have to mean what you say. But if you say Jesus is Lord and you mean it, you can't say except by the Holy Spirit, except if you have the Holy Spirit in you. And on the other hand, if someone really has the Holy Spirit, it's impossible for them to say, Jesus be cursed. 
So in other words, Paul is challenging the Corinthians' criteria for deciding who are the spiritual people. See, they thought that somebody is spiritual if they have a spectacular gift like tongues. But Paul says, everyone who has the Holy Spirit is spiritual. He says, everyone who confesses Christ as Lord is spiritual. Because by definition, all who confess Christ as Lord have the Holy Spirit. Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. And every Christian, therefore, is spiritual. Now, we, we first started looking at 1 Corinthians a year ago now, so I think uh, you might have forgotten by now. But I'm going to show you from chapter 2 what we learned uh, all those months ago. Okay, Chapter 2, verse 12 to 16. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught us by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment, for who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Now this passage here in chapter 2 contrasts two groups of people. So one group are those who do not have the Spirit. They can't possibly understand spiritual things because they don't have the Spirit. But the other group is those who have received the Spirit from God. This group is what is the group called spiritual in verse 15, the spiritual man. And they are able to understand the things of God. See, nowadays we tend to use the word spiritual kind of to gauge levels of Christianity. You know, uh, those who are more obedient or mature higher up there, those are the spiritual ones. And those of us down here are the normal ones, I guess. Right? But really, all of us who are in Christ are spiritual because we have the Holy Spirit. All Christians... Uh, the, uh, all Christians are spiritual and the point is that among Christians there is no such thing as more spiritual or less spiritual. You see, you are either spiritual or you are not. You either have the Holy Spirit or you do not. So there are no distinctions of spirituality. There is no room for dividing Christians into different levels, into different groups. You know, we can't use a gift to test how spiritual a Christian is. We can't say, oh, this person is a very superior Christian because they have this gift. Because we all alike have the Holy Spirit. And that's what makes us spiritual. And then Paul goes on now, in verse 4 onwards, to explain more about spiritual gifts and what is their connection to the Holy Spirit. So in verse 4, he says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. So here there are three parallel sentences which all say the same thing. These verses tell us that there are many different kinds of gifts, many different kinds of service, many different kinds of working. So whatever word you use, gift, service, working, Paul is actually saying the same thing. You see, spiritual gifts are given to serve the church and to work in the church. Whatever word you use, there are different kinds. There are many different kinds of gifts. But on the other hand, 
there, are, there is only one giver of the gifts. Although there are so many different gifts, there is only one person who gives it, and that is God. You see, the gifts come from the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. In other words, they come from the God, the Trinity, the three in one. God the Spirit, God the Son, and God the Father gives gifts to His church. And so the point is, there is one giver of the gifts, God Himself. So spiritual gifts are given by God, but then Paul particularly emphasizes the fact that they are given by the Holy Spirit. So if you look at verse 7, verse 7, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Or verse 11, All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He gives them to each one as, just as He determines. So in verse 7, the gifts are manifestations of the Spirit. and verse 11, they are called the work of one and the same Spirit. So these gifts are given as the Holy Spirit determines. So we don't get to decide who gets what gift. It's the Holy Spirit who chooses what gift to give to you or to you or to you. Now bo- both of those verses, 7 and 11, they highlight that the Holy Spirit gives gifts to each believer, each one. So if you are a Christian, then you have a gift from the Holy Spirit. You may have more than one gift, in fact, from the Holy Spirit. But if you at least have one, and all these gifts are given to you for the common good. They're not given for you to show off, to show how good you are, how gifted you are, but to serve God's people, to build up the church for the good of all. Now in verses 8 to 10, Paul now gives us some examples of spiritual gifts. So verse 8. To one there is given through the Spirit the message of wisdom, to another the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by that one Spirit, to another miraculous powers, to another prophecy, to another distinguishing between spirits, to another speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another the interpretation of tongues. Now this is not a complete list, because I'm going to show you that Paul mentions other gifts that are not mentioned here in some other passages. So if you look uh, at the end of chapter 12, um, 12 verse 8 to te- uh, 28 onwards, these are some of the gifts listed, listed, which were not listed before. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. And then in Romans, there's another list of gifts. I won't read out the whole thing to you, but you can see that there are different gifts listed which were not listed in 1 Corinthians. For example, serving people. For example, encouraging, contributing to the needs of others, leadership, showing mercy. So back in verses 8 to 10, we see that Paul only lists a certain type of gift. He lists the most spectacular ones because these are the ones that the Corinthians are interested in. They are interested in the gifts that have to do with public speaking, with public display, with performing miracles. And these are the gifts that Paul listed. Now, if we don't have any of those gifts in verses 8 to 10, the ones that are listed before, for example, if you don't have the ability to speak the message of wisdom or knowledge, you don't have faith to do supernatural things, you don't have gifts of healing or miraculous powers, prophecy, tongues and interpretation of tongues, don't worry because It doesn't mean that you're inferior. It doesn't mean that you don't have any gift. God may have given you the gift of helping others, 
God may have given you the gift of encouraging people, of serving them, of leading, of contributing to people's needs, showing mercy. So just use whatever gift that God has given to you for the good of all. So in verses 4 to 11, the main point is that every member of the church has a gift given by the Holy Spirit. And now, we can, we can in, in fact sum up all of chapter 12 by using verse 7. Verse 7 is like a theme verse for all of chapter 12. Verse 7 says, Now to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. So, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given is the theme for verses 4 to 11, the first half. And then, for the common good is the theme for the next half of the chapter, verses 12 to 31. The gifts are given for the common good. And in verses 12 to 31, Paul compares the church, the people of God, to a body. Okay, Verse 12 says, The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. The church of God, the people of Christ, they are one body of Christ. And the thing about a body is that it has many parts. You see, you, you can't have a body that only has one part. See, that's exactly what the body of Christ is like. It's one body, but many parts. But how did we become one body in the first place? Well, verse 13 explains, For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Now, in the original Pentecostal teaching, this verse apparently means that the baptism of the Spirit is something that happens only after you become a Christian. That's what they say. And they say that first you become a Christian, and then at a later stage in your life, you receive the baptism of the Spirit, which, uh, which plugs you into the power of the Holy Spirit. But let's look at this verse carefully. See, Paul has emphasized in verses 1 to 3 that all have the Spirit and all are in the body of Christ. Right? He says, we all were baptized uh, by one Spirit or in one Spirit into one body. We all were given the one Spirit to drink. So we all means all of us who confess Jesus as Lord. All of us who believe in Christ. Without any exceptions, we all have been baptized in the Spirit. So, if you have confessed Jesus as your Lord, then you have been spiritually baptized in the Holy Spirit and you have been made a member of the one body of Christ. You've been given the Holy Spirit to drink, which means you have received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, the baptism of the Spirit has already happened to you and it happened when you became a Christian. We all receive the Holy Spirit when we first believe in Jesus and we can't receive Him again because we already have Him. So therefore there is no two-stage baptism of the Spirit. The baptism of the Spirit is not a second blessing that happens you know, some time after your conversion but is given at your conversion. Now this baptism of the Spirit is a spiritual and inward baptism when the Holy Spirit was poured into our lives, when we first believed. And being baptized in water is an outward and physical sign of this inward spiritual baptism that has taken place. 
So if you are a believer in Christ, but for some reason you haven't been baptized in water outwardly, well, I strongly encourage you to be baptized as a confession of your faith in Christ and as a sign that you have received this inward spiritual baptism of the Spirit and that you have entered into the body of Christ. Now, we are all one body in Christ and each part of the body is very important. So that's what the next part is about, from verse 14 to 20. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as He wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Now some of you may feel that you're not very important members of the church. Maybe you think, I don't have any spectacular gifts, I don't feel I'm very significant in this church. I don't feel very important. I have nothing to offer. So listen to what God says here. Imagine if your foot could start talking today. And it says, oh yeah, I'm so ugly. You know, my, the hand looks so much better, so, more, so much more elegant, so much more precise, can pick things up easily, whereas my toes are so clumsy, so stubby. You know, I'm just not as good as the hand, right? I, I, I don't, I'm not good enough to be part of this body. I'm not valuable. Now, that would be a ridiculous thing to say, right? I mean, come on, yes, it's not the hand, the foot is not the hand, but we need the foot too. The foot is definitely part of the body and we need every part of the body that we have. See, a body, by its very nature, needs to have many, many parts. So if the body had only hands but no feet, then it wouldn't be a body. And if the body was just one gigantic eye or a collection of little eyes, it wouldn't be a body too. And so similarly in a church, if, if everybody just wanted to be the preacher, then it wouldn't function properly as a church. And if everybody just wanted to be a consistory member, then it wouldn't function properly as a church. See, we also need people who can encourage the downhearted, who can visit the sick, who can show hospitality, who can do all the IT, the PA stuff, who can teach the children, who can lead the youth, who can fold the bulletins, who can stack the chairs. We need everybody in order for the church to function as a proper church. So those Christians who feel inferior should not feel that way. And then on the other extreme, you have those Christians who think that they are more important than everybody else. See, in the Corinthian church, this was what was happening. There were some who felt that they could speak in tongues and therefore they were more spiritual. But what does God say here in verse 21 to 26? I'll read to you. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty while our presentable parts need no special treatment. 
But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honour to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. So it's saying here that it's not right for the hand, for the eye to say to the hand, I don't need you. It's not right for the head to say to the feet, I don't need you. And what good is, uh, is, a, is an eye if it sees something and it cannot get it because there's no hand to take it? And what good is a head if it's stuck in this position permanently because there's no feet moving it around? Right. So let me tell you a story. One day, uh, the parts of the body held a meeting and wanted to decide which was the most important part in the body. So the brain said, I am the control center for the whole body. Without me, the rest of the body would be no use at all. And then the stomach said, What about me? You know, without me, you guys would be starved to death. You wouldn't function for more than a few days. And then you'd die. And then the legs said, Well, what use is a body without legs? Right? It would just be stuck in one place. It cannot move around. It can't go anywhere. And the eye said, well, what use are legs if there are no eyes? You'll just be walking around, groping around in the dark, you're stubbing your toes all the time. And this went on and on between all the different parts of the body. And in the midst of all this, the back passage decided that it would never win the argument. It says, nobody cares about me. Nobody even knows I'm here. I'm just going to go on strike. So it stopped working. And within a few days, this body started to feel terrible. See, the brain was like clogged up, it couldn't think straight, and the stomach didn't feel like taking any food in, and the legs just didn't feel like walking around, was too weak to move, and the eyes didn't care what you were saying, it just didn't bother. See, we need one another, that's the point of the story. We need every part of the body, even the parts that you think are not presentable. Verse 22 says, In the body, some members may seem weaker, may seem less honorable, may seem less presentable. They may be people in the church who are not as upfront, not as spectacular, not as popular. They're just there unnoticed by the rest of us, taken for granted. But they are the indispensable ones, according to Paul. They should receive special honor and care, given that we usually just ignore them. We should give them care and concern to make up for the fact that they are usually not noticed by people. And in this way, the parts of the body will show equal concern for one another and not be divided. You see, our society always honors those people who are already honored. And we always disregard those people who are already ignored. But in the church, we are not like the society out there. We must give the greater honor to those who are disregarded, to compensate, in a sense, for, those, for the t- fact that they are usually ignored. We must pay greater attention to those who usually get no attention or less attention. Now, one way to tell if we are living out this unity in the body of Christ is in verse 26, is by whether we can suffer and rejoice with one another. Verse 26 says, If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now, if you accidentally slam the door on your finger, it's not just your finger that hurts, 
it's your whole body that hurts, isn't it? The whole of you feels the pain. It's not like you can just ignore the pain in the finger, it's isolated to your finger. No, the brain feels the pain. Your eyes start watering, your heart starts jumping faster, your legs are jumping around in agony because of the pain. So if, each, if somebody in this church has pain, has an illness or lost a loved one, gets laid off from work, gets depressed or suffers from whatever problem, we all should feel the pain as if it was our own. See, in the body of Christ, there is no such thing as saying, that's your problem and not mine. See, in the body of Christ, your problem is also my problem because we are all united in Christ in one body. And likewise, if somebody in the body is honoured, we should all share their joy and celebrate with them. See, if somebody is praised for their ability to teach, then we should be happy for them and we shouldn't try to tear them down and show that we are actually better than them. If someone can play a musical instrument better than you, well, thank God for giving them that gift. Don't be resentful. If somebody can cook fried noodles better than you for the church breakfast, that's good. You know, that's so much better for the whole church. There is no room in the body of Christ for any kind of rivalry or envy or jealousy. Because we are all in it together. We are all in in it to serve the body. Remember that these gifts are given not for you yourself individually, but for the common good of the whole church. So if the whole church benefits, then we should rejoice. Now in verses 27 to 30, Paul now spells out this body analogy for the Corinthians, just in case they didn't understand what he was saying. Okay, he says to them, verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? And we feel like shouting back, no, no, no. Of course, the answer to all of these questions is no. Of course, not everybody is an apostle or a prophet or able to do miracles or can speak in tongues. We shouldn't expect any gift to be common to everyone in the church. But each one has a gift to use in the body and each one is equally part of this body of Christ. And then in verse 31, Paul says, But eagerly desire the greater gifts, and now I will show you the most excellent way. Now this verse kind of throws a spanner in the works, isn't it? It you might think to yourself after reading all the rest of chapter 12, well, we are, all, we are all as good as each other. No gift is greater than another. So what does Paul mean by the greater gifts? No gift is greater. Well, actually, Paul did not say earlier that no gift is greater than another. He said no one is greater than another because of the gifts they have. No one is greater just because of the gift that they have. People are not superior or inferior in the church because of the gift that they have. But some gifts are greater than another. So the first, if you look at verse 28, those first three gifts are listed in order of ranking. Right? It says, first of all, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers. 
So there is a ranking in importance. But how do we know which gift is more imp- well greater? How do we know which gift is greater? Well, we won't get to this until we look at chapter 14. I'll give you a slight preview in a, in a sense. In chapter 14, verse 1, Paul says, Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. So Paul considers the gift of prophecy as one of the greater gifts that they are to desire. But why is that a greater gift? Well, he tells us the reason in chapter 14, verse 4 and 5. It is because it edifies the church more. So, the mark of you know, which one is a greater gift, the, the criterion for deciding which one is a greater gift is whether it builds up the church or not. How much it builds up the church. That's how you decide. And the, uh, whichever gift builds up the church the most is the greater gift, is the greatest gift. So it's true that the Spirit gives gifts according to what He determines, but we can also desire the greater gifts. We can pray for the, that God will give us the greater gifts to serve His church even better. And we can encourage those in our church who have the greater gifts to use it for God's glory, and to serve His people. And so to sum up in chapter 12, spiritual gifts are given by the Holy Spirit to each Christian for the common good of all, to build up the body of Christ. Every part of this body is equally needed. Every part is as valued as the others, no matter what their function is, no matter what their gift is. Nevertheless, we must eagerly desire and exercise the greater gifts in our church. So how do we put all this into practice? Well, the first application to me is use your gift to serve the body of Christ. Use your gift. Very straightforward. If you know what your gift is, then you ought to be using it, not just sitting on your hands in church and doing nothing with the gifts that God has given to you. You have a responsibility to use what God has given to you to serve His church, to build up His church. Now, in, uh, in 1 Timothy, I'll just show you some verses. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul told Timothy this. He said, Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders laid their hands on you. And he tells him the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 1. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame, in other words to rekindle, or to put to use the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So if you know what your gift is, then do what God has gifted you to do. Use it. If you are part of the body of Christ, you can't be just a spectator warming the seats every Sunday. You have an important role to play in church. I don't think, oh, I've done my part, I've had my go, it's time for those people with more energy, the younger ones, to just do everything. No, we never retire from serving the Lord. And so look for something that you can do with the gifts that God has given to you, all of us. Now some of us may say, but I don't even know what gift uh, I have, so what can I do? How, How can I know what my spiritual gift is? Is it the same as my natural abilities and my talents? Well, a spiritual gift is not exactly the same as a natural ability, but many times God t- chooses to use our natural talents, our natural abilities, and turn them into gifts to serve His church. Now, you might not have any supernatural gifts, like uh, prophecy or uh, tongues or healings or miracles, but maybe you are good at encouraging people, getting, uh, getting to people one-on-one, or you may be good at showing hospitality, uh, making people feel at home, You may be good at soothing misunderstandings between people. 
making peace. You may be good at helping out in practical ways around the church. You know, you may have gifts of administration or leadership. Whatever it is, how can you know what your gift is? Well, I think it's only when you do something that you find out what you are good at doing. It's only when you go out there, throw yourself into the life of the church. Go and fill in the gaps. Find out what needs doing around the place. And when opportunities come up in different areas of ministry, volunteer for those things, try it out. And over time, as you get involved in different things, you will work out what you are good at doing and what you are not so good at doing. Now, Even if you are not so good at doing something, it doesn't... Uh, mean that you will remain that way. You can become good at it after some practice and some training. Because the Holy Spirit often doesn't just give us a gift by zapping us one day with a gift and suddenly we have this miraculous ability to you know, lead Bible study very, very, very well. No, sometimes we have to grow in this gift. We have to work hard at it. We have to uh, develop ourselves in that area of ministry. And the Holy Spirit will give us the gift at the same time as we are working to develop it. So you won't be accepted into uh, a position of being a preacher or a teacher just because you say one day to the pastor, I have the gift of preaching, use me to preach. right? You must submit to training, to testing, before the church will recognize your gift and allow you to use it. Now, I think this is the problem with um, churches which tell you to Discover your gift and then use your gift in that area. That's it. Okay? Uh, sometimes um, some churches will use questionnaires to, for you to, to help you to find out your gift. A bit like uh, a personality test kind of questionnaire. Now, nothing wrong with a questionnaire, but I think the best way is still practical experience. Because a questionnaire can only do so much, but you should have to actually be involved yourself in that area of ministry before you can actually know whether you, you are good at doing it or not. But the main problem really with the find out your gift and then go into that area approach, there's a big problem with that. It's put the cart before the horse. You see, what is the point of a spiritual gift? The point of a spiritual gift is to build up the church. right? But if we put the individual's need before the church's need, if we put the individual's gift before the church's need, then we are putting the cart before the horse course. See, if an individual says, I have a certain gift and I expect you to make space for me to use it in this church, then it's not asking the more important question, which is, how can I serve this church? What areas of service are needed in this church? How can I build up this church? So if you are very good at leading Bible study, imagine that our church has too many Bible study leaders. Okay, well, that's not true, by the way. Okay, so, uh, but imagine that we have too many Bible study leaders, and um, you say, well, I have the gift of Bible study leading, but I have no opportunity to use it in this church, so I'm just not going to do anything else because there's nothing for me to do. What if the church is crying out for people to serve in other ways? What if you know, you know, there are opportunities for other things? Are you just going to say that's not my gift, so I'm not even going to consider it? See, the most important question to ask is not, what is my spiritual gift? The most important question to ask is, what is lacking in this church? Like I said, the ultimate aim of spiritual gifts is to build up the common good of the church for the body of Christ. And so if we insist that we only use the gifts that we have, we refuse to serve in any other ways, then our priority is no longer the good of the church, but it's become our own 
desire, our own need for self-satisfaction and recognition. So let's not use our gifts in a selfish way to say, you know, look at me, look at how good I am at doing this. Especially if our gifts are one of those more visible gifts, more uh, impressive gifts. But let us make the good of the church our topmost priority. So try to serve wherever your service is needed, not just uh, what you think your gifts are. Of course, if you know what your gifts are, try to serve in that area because you'll be more effective. But if you don't know what areas you can serve in, maybe you can approach pastor and ask him, what areas uh, may I be able to help out in this church? I'm sure he'll be able to point you in the right direction. And as you serve in those areas, God will give you the gifts that you need to do it well. And after serving for a while, you are going to recognize what you're good at. And other people around you in church will also tell you what you're good at doing. And they will encourage you in those directions. And you will eventually end up maximizing your gifts to serve God and to build up His church. Now the second major point of application is that we should show equal concern for each part of the body of Christ. Some of us are just not uh, visible. Some of us are just quietly sitting in the background every Sunday or working in the background. Well, let's not forget about those people. God says that they are indispensable people. They are to be given special care, special concern. Now those who are popular, those who are visible, often get a lot of attention. So we should go out of our way to give attention to those who are less visible, to those who are neglected and forgotten. Go and talk to them during breakfast. Of course, that doesn't mean that you should uh, just ignore everybody else who, who, who is in the forefront. I'm sure they also need encouraging. But um, I'm saying that remember those who are in the background of the church. They are equally part of our body in Christ. And the third point of application is that we should not make any gift into the criterion of being spiritual. Now, no gift should be used as a measure of whether somebody is spirit-filled or not spirit-filled. So it's wrong to say, I have the gift of tongues or prophecy or, or healing, therefore I am more spiritual. I am closer to God than somebody who can't speak in tongues. No. But on the other hand, it's also wrong for us to say, I don't have the gift of tongues, therefore I am more spiritual than those who can speak in tongues. It works both ways. No gift makes you more spiritual and no gift makes you less spiritual. The gift that you have makes no difference to whether you have the Spirit or not. See, the Holy Spirit is not the exclusive property of any group of Christians, but the Holy Spirit is given to all who confess Christ as Lord. You know, nowadays in places like um, the UK or Australia, it's quite fashionable to give uh, a, a different type of Christmas gift. So instead of going and buy some useless pair of socks and giving people all the time that they were just going to chuck away, right? They, 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 they use that same amount of money that they're going to spend on the Christmas gift and they go and buy something to give to charity. Like you get a card saying, you have received a goat. Uh, somebody bought you a goat uh, to donate to some village somewhere in Africa, right? Okay. Now imagine if I bought a gift, Christmas gift for you, right? Uh, uh, gave this money to this charity to buy this goat for someone, and they used it to buy uh, cigarettes or landmines, right, to give to those people. What would I feel, right? I mean, my gift was intended for good, but it was turned to a bad use. Now, God gave us spiritual gifts in order to build up the church in love and in unity. 
It's very sad when his good gifts end up dividing the church and tearing down the church. So we should be careful not to use the Holy Spirit's gifts to do the opposite of what he gave them for. Instead, we should use our gifts to help build up the body of Christ, not to divide it. And we should use it to show equal concern for everybody in the church and not to split people into different groups of how spiritual they are. And we should use it without insisting that our gift makes us the most spiritual person. So may God help us in that. Let's pray. My Heavenly Father, we were all baptized in one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Thank you that by your grace we are included in the body of Christ. You have given each one of us, through the Holy Spirit, gifts to serve your people. Please help us use these gifts to your glory for the common good of all, and not in a selfish or divisive way. And help us to value every part of the body of Christ as one of our own, and to show equal concern for one another. And please build up our church, BTPC, in unity and godliness, that we may be conformed more and more into the likeness of Christ, and bear witness to Him before the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.